It's time now for episode 45 of the Insecurity Show, Meltdown Inspector. This week we're discussing Meltdown, Spectre, and other hardware and software security vulnerabilities. Visit our website at in-security.org for show notes, past episodes, and more. Follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. Send us email to feedback at in-security.org. My name's Matt. And my name's Max. How's it going, buddy boy? Good, how are you? I'm handsome as ever. Nice. Still your joke. That's a good story. Story. Right. Uh, is this the show? Are we recording? Are you? I mean, I'm recording. Is this the show? And we're back. <laughs> How's it going? How are you doing this week, buddy? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing this week? Oh man, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, Did yeah. You have a good little break. Oh, just uh, relaxed over the uh, the Christmas and the New Year's holiday. And yeah. last Halloween, and also probably last Easter. What? When was the last time we recorded? <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, it was, it was just real soothing, real calming for me. It was great. How about you? Good. You you get up to anything fun? Yeah, yeah, stuff and things. Oh, it's a great story. Yeah, last week I took a couple of days off while the kids were on March break. Got sunburn in Florida. You betcha. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. I feel like your kids are a little bit young for you to be taking them to spring break in Florida. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. They didn't go? You just, it was just you. <laughs> like, wow, it took a couple of days off. I'm going down to Florida. Anyway, see you, kids. No, yeah. We, we all went as a family. Um, nice. Yeah. My in-laws have a place down there. So it was good. That's very awesome. Yeah, it was uh, It was really nice. Uh, after this winter we've been having, It's it was a good little recharge. Oh, sorry. You don't get winter wear. I wouldn't know. <laughs> it was sunny again today. Yeah. It was lovely. The uh, cherry blossoms, I think, are blossoming. Mm. I got a bunch of my coworkers in New York City right now. They're getting over a foot of snow in a day. Nice. Yeah, I'm going there next week. So. Oh, Vancouver shut down because uh, they were expecting 10 centimeters of snow. Mm. Can you imagine? I don't think I, you can I, imagine. I've been in Vancouver when it shut down for a dusting of snow before. Yeah. Max, 10 centimeters. 10 centimeters is, is snowpocalypse. Yeah, it's almost 12 centimeters. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Just, it's like a third of a foot. Yeah. People people were losing their mind. They, they heard about it on the radio mm. and preemptively drove into ditches before it even started <laughs> snowing. Yeah. Uh, for the listeners, I was... I was there when there was maybe five centimeters of snow watching a car heading down a hill very slowly proceed to spin in circles for zero reason whatsoever. There was nobody else on the road. It was perfectly clear day. I have no idea how the person pulled off such a crazy stunt. Did it look like they were one of the the stuntin drivers? Was that no, was that their no, jam? No, it's not really the stuntin type of car. Okay, some Oldsmobile, if I recall correctly. Fair enough. But anyways, yeah. So let's try this podcasting thing again. Podcasting—that's the thing we're mm-hmm. good at. Let's do that. I've been doing a lot of research. That's amazing. By listening to a lot of podcasts, <laughs> I got I got invited to this podcast. Uh, yes. So I figured, hey, why not? Let me let me polish off my chops. Uh, right. To do that, I I spoke on the phone earlier today. Oh, that's nice. Just to warm up my vocal cords. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I've been um, you know, for work. I have work that I'm supposed to do for work. Okay. <laughs> right. 
and I've been, I've been, um, instead of doing work, I've been, uh, listening to podcasts about how to work more efficiently. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. So like, yeah. you know, uh, uh, getting things done and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Merlin man, do you know who he is? Um, yes, yes. No, I know Merlin man. Oh, cool. Uh, so he has a podcast called back to work and I'm working through some previous episodes on that. And I thought maybe you knew Merlin man, because I find a lot of the times you speak about things, you use words that he also uses. Oh yes. I've, I've, uh, appropriated a lot of his, his colloquialisms, um, like solutioneering is um, a massive one that I stole from him. Uh, or I listened to Merlin Mann specifically, uh, a lot during the, you look nice today era. Right. I've heard of that. That's the one that they were referring to in this back to work podcast series, I guess I should call it. They talk about it a fair amount. Yeah. Yeah. They talk about it. And then the guy that Merlin's doing it with Dan, I forget his last name at the moment. Um, Plays dumb. Dan Benjamin. Is that the one you do with so-and-so? Uh, yeah. yeah, so 5 by 5 is the network I believe they're on, and that's Dan Benjamin, who is his co-host and the, I think, guru behind the 5 by 5 network. Yeah, so, and and they're very, their ads are very good. Like, I want to buy and read the stuff that they're talking about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially getting things done. I've, yeah, by Alan David. Yeah, I could I could steal jokes from podcasts all day long and probably do. Very good and inspirational stuff that's eating away at my subconscious. The yeah, no, it's it's definitely something worth considering because it's it. There's so much that you can get out of paying attention to the way that you do stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I, like just in general, like that's a, that's a, a, a dumb, a loaded, dumb, smart person statement. It's no, but it's absolutely true. Like there's, there's so many times that I find I'm sabotaging myself by, you know, saying, okay, I'll go and address that later. And something that's really become apparent through listening to this is your brain's not designed to that. Your brain's designed to come up with ideas and not actually to prioritize storage. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that one that one cut to the quick for me. Because I have a tendency of opening up a tab with something and being like, well, I'll get back to that later. And then closing Chrome and all of my tabs are gone. You know, something like, like, like that. And maybe sometimes that's an okay tactic. But for things that I should just start getting stuff done on it right away so that at least like my brain starts working on it in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of other points that I got when I started really listening to that show specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, welcome to podcast review. Let's talk about other podcasts. So one of the things that I found that that really started helping me when I started listening to that was the idea. And I don't know whether I got it from them or whether I got it from something else because I started really looking into these kind of things. The externalization of knowledge or tasks like e- setting timers and reminders for mundane things so that I don't have to think about those. Mm. Uh, and I can spend my cycles in other places. I haven't gotten to that stage yet. Um, obviously was, yeah. I mean, it's not, I'm not good at it, but it's something that I do for some things. And so based off of that, uh, I've now got a, an unhealthy relationship with my phone because if I set a timer for something and I haven't done it, then I like to think in my mind that my phone is, is judging me and thinking really poorly of me because it's just like, come right. on, man, it's just sitting here. You can just swipe it away. It'll be done. Just do it and swipe it away. That yeah. kind of thing. Um, another one that they, I believe that they talked about, which I think Merlin 
glommed onto as part of the the getting things done was <clears throat> the idea of instead of grandiose plans make smaller versions of it so for instance if i wanted to say build a table this weekend then don't say build a table this weekend as your thing to do right say go to the hardware store and get this this and this as right. a thing to do go to the the tool shop and buy a hammer or get mm-hmm. your hammer sharpened or whatever it is you need to do to hammers i don't know <laughs> i'm clearly not a a hammersmith but um you you have each one of these as a broken down step which then makes it so you you get your hammer sharpened you get your uh screws polished and then you're ready to go you know mm-hmm. you've you've got all of the the gear and you break it into the smaller pieces and once you have it in smaller pieces then it all just seems manageable and mundane as opposed to just you know build the table as i was going yep. with. and that kind of stuff really resonated with me because it seemed not only sensible but much easier to do and a lot less intimidating when you're looking at your to-do list and then also managing what you put on it maybe it's fine if you don't put stuff on it maybe it's fine if you don't if you don't do something right if it's not a when they talk about prioritization it's pretty interesting too right about uh you know if you've had something on your priority list for you know a year or two it's obviously not a priority (laughs) it's just and just come to grips with that and get rid of it and then unpack that mental baggage that's that's tied up with that there's also the idea of time as a currency mm, i haven't heard of that yet well so time is effectively a currency where you spend your time is where you you know spend your interest where you align all of your goals and everything so mm-hmm. it, it ties very closely to the idea of if you've got stuff sitting on your priority list that means that you should think that that's a thing that's worth spending your time on because time is the most finite resource that you have. Yeah. Cool. You know, that really makes me think of <laughs> what's know, that? If, oh, just, uh, when I, when I think about spending, I think of millions. And when I think of millions, I think of the millions of major flaws of Intel chips that were revealed. <laughs> smooth operator i feel like we should probably get on message here what's uh yeah. what's what are we talking about today max so we've talked about it in the past a little bit uh around vulnerabilities yeah we've talked about like web vulnerabilities before we've talked about patch management the importance of that we've spent a whole episode talking about heartbleed before um you know vulnerabilities are kind of a pretty important thing that needs to get addressed in it in general right right and it's often a partnership when we're talking about like enterprise scale stuff a split responsibility between the different people that are part of the organization so you've got the ops people that care about uptime you've got the security people that are like being alerted to this stuff and saying well you got to address that you've got the owners saying my app's down then we're going to lose so much money right Mm -hmm. and then you've got to do the political communication to them well you need to update your app so that you don't have outages based on these vulnerabilities that are there so you have to schedule maintenance windows and whatnot typically we're talking about like software vulnerabilities or even like web app vulnerabilities where we've talked about that before right there's a whole bunch of other classes of vulnerabilities that are kind of more rare that we see and the intel and amd flaws that have been discussed since we last podcasted have really spoken to that and even before that there was another one that i had put in our show notes queuing dingus thing um 
to to uh, to talk about the Wi-Fi vulnerabilities that were there um, called Crack, and that was um, Crack. What's that stand for? Key rejection attack. Key is it key? Do you mean the key reinstallation attack? That would be the one. Yeah. All I did was looked up Crackronym. <laughs> nice. Nice. Uh, yeah. Key reinstallation attack. So this is where things get interesting, where you have basically a flaw in the implementation of a standard. And this is actually tied to the WPA2 authentication standard for for wireless. It's actually like in the RFP written in such a way that if you're implementing the protocol correctly, not going off script, you're implementing a flaw. And it's just something that people hadn't considered how a bad guy could act. So this is this is the recipe for how to follow this protocol. Okay. Essentially. And it, in it it has this three-way handshake. Following those steps, you can actually as an attacker create this whole man in the middle situation because you're physically in proximity but because it's wireless you don't actually have to be in the building you just have to be kind of anywhere around it that you can reinstall the key as as the name symbolizes right you can attack people to reinstall the key old wireless attacks for wpa deauthenticated the communication so that you could get in there at the beginning of the setup of the communication and WPA1 had this initialization vector, which is like a nonce from the cryptographic side, which is like, hey, here's a couple numbers that we're going to agree on as a seed to start our encryption algorithm around to make it somewhat random, but still somewhat predictable. So wait a minute, you're saying that there's an option to reinstall the key as opposed to scrap it altogether and come out with a new one? Yeah, so that's the vulnerability that they found within the actual RFC is um, the RFC said, well, you have to be able to like renegotiate the key if you're changing channels, for instance, right? So in a, a large building, you might have the same SSID that you're connecting to on your wireless, but they might be operating on different frequencies uh, or channels to not interfere with each other. Okay. So it'll allow a smooth transition where you'll still be connected with your wireless device as you move from one side of the warehouse to the other side of the warehouse, where it's not one single access point that's able to service you. There's multiple access points. Right. right? And they operate on different channels so that you can smoothly transition without dropping the connection. And then there's the logic on the back end. The access points themselves aren't, you know, routing the traffic. They're just handling it as if like going through a switch type thing. And because we're talking about web protected access, I think that's what WPA stands for. It's like the encryption side that keeps your communication private from other people who are also communicating over the same medium through the airwaves. Okay. That are also participating like in the same thing from being able to see the the stuff you're communicating, whatever it's. Um, yeah. So the whole in WPA one, you can de authenticate um, somebody if you're able to um, be in proximity of them and then you can actually see them renegotiating their connection back to the access point and because the the initialization vector for WPA1 was fairly limited like like two bytes long or something like that you or two bits long you can actually you know guess 
those first few connections. And then because the encryption is built on that first part and it just keeps chaining them together as it goes, mm-hmm. then once, once you get that first part, then you can actually be in between those two or you can, you can insert yourself in between the, the client and the access point okay. and intercept all the communication there. All right. So that was WPA1 attack. So WPA2 fixed that with the initialization vector. They have a, a bigger nonce that's you know not feasible to compute within that short amount of time. But, uh, and it's like four bytes long or something like that. But they also have this thing saying, we need to be able to renegotiate these connections when you travel between channels. Okay. And so they've built in this this part of the establishment of the four-way handshake to do that somebody discovered that within this you can actually force someone to renegotiate as if they're connecting to another channel whereas you're that other channel sorry did we go from a three-way handshake to now a four-way handshake well three-way handshakes like tcp tcp ip right so you've got the sin ack sorry once you sorry. went to four-way handshake i just it it was all gone for me now i'm just picturing like a, a john woo handshake Everyone's everyone's reaching out and holding each other's hands real tightly, and the camera's spinning around, and the dramatic music is rising. And then, whoa, was that a dove? Four-way handshake is the the different steps that are needed for the secret handshake to complete, so mm-hmm. that you then have an encrypted communication pathway between the client and the access point. Yep, yeah, fair, fair. Thanks for calling that out. That's good. So within that, there's the renegotiation of the the key that's part of the. Uh, request for proposal that makes up the Internet Engineering Task Force paper on how to implement this correctly. And part of that is that you can renegotiate it. And on some devices, back when this was first written about, they discovered that Linux and Android had a flaw where when you say to renegotiate it, it actually just chooses zeros for its nonce. So you can do the same man-in-the-middle attack that you could do for WPA1 and WPA2. And you can take over instead of being, well, I mean, you're still in between. But you can actually, for a bunch of machines now, pretend like you're the access point. Okay. And then intercept all that traffic. So that's why protocol implementation flaws are so interesting. They're like, they're much more powerful. Um, Microsoft was safe at the time because they didn't follow the RFP. They did it a little bit differently at the time. And Mac had found out about the flaw some other way and had also addressed it. So it was basically Linux and Android because there were ardent followers of the RFP that got a little, mm, they were more vulnerable. Um, right. Plus their their failure to renegotiate that key correctly and go with all zeros compounded the problem. So crack had a bunch of scenarios in which it would work, but this was the most grievous one. And because most access points actually operate like a slimmed down version of Linux, they also had different sorts of vulnerabilities that they were uh, susceptible to where you could take over communication from them to another one. Fair enough. Yeah. So it, it's really interesting when it's protocol related it's even more interesting when it's hardware related so right. this is where the the specter and meltdown flaws were discovered and they actually brought about a whole new class of vulnerability that people hadn't been thinking about before to speak about these we did an episode a really long time ago that's recorded very poorly on how cpus work that must be like episode two or something probably something like that talked about like registers and memory management we talked about operating system memory management so between 
episode two and three, that's where we covered kind of some of the fundamental concepts of, of how these things work. But we did, we kind of stepped away and, and did a high level talk. We didn't talk about like memory pipelining and, and memory tables and how the operating system abstracts all of that. And the CPU to operating system needs to communicate over these things. So to make CPUs go faster back in the day. I remember that. That was easy. You just pressed the turbo button on your computer. And a little after that, they discovered that they needed to pipeline different memory processes so that you can have multiple things in queue, even though a certain CPU instruction will take like a tick to do or, mm-hmm. or three ticks to do of the CPU. Um, you can have many other things paralyzed on that CPU to execute. Parallelized? Yeah, and this is even before we had like multiple cores. Okay. Right? So we had kind of things in in the queue waiting for other things to happen. So when a read-write instruction happened on the CPU, um, that maybe said go to the go to the actual hard drive, spin it up, read this kind of sector from it, or go to the random access memory on the system and pull something out of there to start executing on. There were a bunch of other tasks that could then swap in while it waits for responses or to, to look back and see if there's anything in that hard drive's buffer to pull out that's a response to the request that it made. Mm-hmm. So that's how before multiple cores, things would, multiple apps could run at the same time and do different things. Um, Was that and threading? It, threading, uh, multi-threading, hyper-threading? Hyper-threading, yeah. Yeah, back in the day, hyper-threading. I'm not exactly sure how that fits in with memory pipelines that are on CPUs. But yeah, back in the day when we were looking at like Pentium processors, there was, I don't know, 16 memory pipelines that, that were available. And it's just kind of increased in complexity. Okay. Um, and between the memory pipelines and this table that gets written that only the operating system can see as to instructions that that kind of exist throughout these pipelines so that it can tell the CPU kind of what manage the CPU in, in the way that it's supposed to, the kernel can manage the CPU in the way it's designed to. There was a, a kind of a flaw that could happen. And that was just discovered recently with a meltdown attack. You can actually kind of melt and merge these things a little bit together. So you can actually access memory components that you're not supposed to be able to access. Right. Um, so that was kind of a new new flaw and a new category of flaw, these types of timing attacks against CPUs. CPUs, like back in the Pentium, there was a Pentium bug that was a different kind of math issue that prevailed uh, across a bunch of things and actually needed Intel to recall all of the, the certain generation of Pentium processor back and cost them like millions of dollars. And it was it was like millions of dollars back in the day. So it's like you know, tens of millions of dollars now to actually make things go faster once they had multiple cores and, and hyper threading uh, in in there. They also came up with this thought of, well, because the CPU is maybe chunking on something else and we've got all these memory pipelines available to us, we can start doing speculative execution, which is kind of like magic. Right? It's going to speculate as to what the next instruction that it is more likely to happen and then go through those kind of what-if scenarios in the background while waiting for, for things to complete. Right. And it turns out that when you futz around with this magic and start playing tricks with the magician, 
starts producing results that, you know, shouldn't be in that memory space. And then when you use that from something else, you then get results that you shouldn't see in there. Right. And possibilities include some of the most secret things that are on the computer, cryptographic keys, passwords, whatever. Right. And even when you have like virtualized systems, you can even go beyond what you should be able to see. So you can actually escape the virtual machine and see the the memory of another virtual machine or even of the host operating system. Whoa. So that's really where this whole class of attack got very scary for a lot of cloud service providers. Right. Uh, and that was the specter class of, of vulnerabilities uh, through the cutesy term, but it's specter is about speculative execution. I just want to give a little bit of props to whoever is in charge of coming up with these names because they are fantastic. You got meltdown, you got specter, you got crack, you got Heartbleed, you got, this is, they're terrifying. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole, love hate thing in the uh, security community about it people are like all these cutesy names for like very technical things you know nerds going mer, 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 as but like, Merlin might say i mean people people take it seriously i mean they, yeah, i mean they definitely take it more seriously than when it's you know um if it's named properly versus yeah, and, and and the only like real downside to that is sometimes people do that whole branding marketing thing for things that aren't a big deal. That's right? fair. And just because it has a nice name, people start freaking out about it. And really, it's like a, a very little to nothing vulnerability. So the news people really love, you know, the, the terror and paranoia bits of everything. So I guess it does kind of make sense that more people would pay attention to like floating point unit processor bug if it was named something more sexy like Intel murder party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. For sure. Yeah. They recently came out with a whole bunch of AMD 13 critical vulnerabilities for AMD's Ryzen and Epic processor families uh, from discovered by CTS labs. Yeah. And it's, although they're critical, they're very difficult to take advantage of apparently. Okay. And they're, they've been verified that yes, they are you know, repeatable and, and problematic. You know, they, they don't deserve a logo and a brand associated with them. Do you remember when the floating point unit processing issue happened to Pentium? Yeah. And Intel changed their, uh, their slogan to at Intel quality is job point nine, 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 eight, nine, nine, six, Oh, nine, five, four. Ouch. <laughs> Harsh, Matt. Harsh. I just remember all these Pentium bug jokes and they were all terrible, but the nerds would love them. If mm. I went to a party, that would not hit. But if I went to a LAN party, that would slay. Yep. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting when, when you get to you know those the Spectre and Meltdown flaws, when you're talking about potentially needing to recall a ton of CPUs, but obviously because it was Intel AMD and ARM that were affected by Meltdown and Spectre combined that um, there wasn't a recall. And it's the flaw has been in there for decades, essentially, for doing speculative execution that's been there for, for quite a while. Mm -hmm. So operating systems had to patch the vulnerability themselves by 
better managing and controlling that who can access other parts of the memory. Intel is going to be putting out CPUs shortly that will actually address it and take that load off of the operating system. And that load actually impacts performance. And we're talking about like cloud implementations. You've got these chassis of these CPUs racked together with these virtual machine, with these machines running on it, all handled on like the backbone of that chassis. You're talking about some significant impacts to performance, like visible, right? not like doomsday type stuff. People are saying, you know, it could be up to 50% performance. It wasn't. It wasn't anything near that. But, it, you know, 20% still pretty bad. Yeah. Because you've got the hypervisor that needs to implement the fix. You've got the guest virtual machine that needs to implement the fix. You know, it's it's compounding. Plus, then you might have like a Docker instance within that. And you have, you know, its own operating system there as well that needs the fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like Russian dolls when you're talking Russian nesting dolls. Yeah, Matroska. Well, when they were discovering that these things could be manipulated, it was basically the code running on that system itself would would be the thing manipulating and, and accessing different pieces of, of memory through the speculative execution by creating these elaborate kind of scenarios. And... You know, that means that somebody needs to be running on their PC. Well, what runs things on people's PC that's not from their PC? Web browsers mm. through the use of JavaScript. And JavaScript's been getting more and more sophisticated. And it's been adding a lot of precision based on timing so that it could do some of the more sophisticated functions that it does. And actually, Mozilla took their Firefox browser and needed to dumb it down to protect against these attacks. So they took out some of this high performance timing so that you couldn't do the very specific timing attacks that are needed to make these flaws occur from a remote website. So interesting knock on effects of these. Are you recommending Firefox over my Netscape navigator? Uh, It's probably time to let it go, Matt. But probably time to let Netscape navigator go. It's at 5.5 now. No, no, it's not. It's a long time ago. Oh, I have follow-up from last episode. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that was follow-up from last episode. Netscape Navigator 5.5 is the new browser. Everyone should get it. Uh, It has been that long. All right, moving. (laughs) What's what's your follow-up? I'm sure yours is a little bit more timely. Uh, We actually talked about uh, there was a significant breach last time. Do you remember that? Yes. Uh, Equine faxing? Ashley Madison. (laughs) A little after that one. Equifax. Yes, that'd be the one. Remember how we talked about some suspicious kind of trading that happened? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So the actual SEC ruled that uh, Equifax did do some insider trading. Uh, yeah, one of their executives was was found guilty of that. Yeah, the company's global CIO. So that's interesting. There was a real interesting and comedic take on the whole Equifax debacle from the last week tonight. I don't know if you saw that. We'll put that in the show notes to uh, to refresh you. And you can find the show notes at in-security.org slash EP045. And just to jump around a lot between the follow-up and, and tying this back to the Spectre and Meltdown, whole new class of vulnerabilities. It's very rare. It's it's actually really rare that a whole new class of vulnerabilities gets discovered. Because it's something that's not 
really been looked into yet. Hmm. Meaning that developers as they or en- engineers and manufacturers as they build these things haven't been considering the impact of these things along the way. Right. They hadn't had the lens to look at what they were producing and the potential for it to be a vulnerability that somebody could exploit. So now that the kind of box has been opened, these things are going to get looked at a lot more in scrutiny and we'll see a lot more things coming to light as far as, you know, other speculative execution vulnerabilities along the same lines of, of these that we've seen kind of opening up this whole new class of vulnerability. So my role on this show is clearly to give the uh, tinfoil hat crowd a voice in the media. And you say discovered, but one of the the popular speculations is just that this has been known. It's been around for 20 years. It has to have been discovered previously. So if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, or if the tree falls in the forest and then the government sanctions it, then six of one half of the other, they knew that it was there. Sure, sure. But that's the, the delightful theory. I'm just giving it voice. I don't know. And it's entirely possible. Yeah. The point still is the manufacturers didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. Or they gave no indication of knowing about it because they would have fixed it because it's a big problem having this out there. Right. One that Intel has experienced a lot of pain, money, and and reputational damage having to repair in the past. Right. So whether some people were taking advantage of it and kept it super secret and they've managed to do miracles with it, it's entirely possible. But now that the cat's out of the bag, the security researchers are now able to delve deeper into this whole new category. Right. And we've seen that with off by one attacks. We've seen it with uh, cryptographic timing attacks. We've seen it with other classes of attacks that have happened after the fact, where there's already a large body of work that we can look back over because chips have been around for a long time. The fact that meltdown also affects, it's either meltdown or specter. I can't recall, but it also affects arm architecture, which cell phones work on mm-hmm. and all the crappy manufacturing of cell phones across the board and it's something as fundamental as speculative execution, which always seemed like magic. So it was already already very complicated. And as you add complexity, there's a lot more room for things to go wrong with it. Right now, people are able to start digging into that and find out. And maybe they'll find things in Tizen chips instead and, and other manufacturers that haven't been really looked at yet because there hasn't been the number of eyes looking for the this flaw. Now there's kind of blood in the water and the sharks are out sniffing at, at different things and seeing what they can eat. Right. Right. Uh, Microsoft though is actually done a really cool thing and they have kind of a bug bounty program where I think we've talked about that in the past where people are able to submit vulnerabilities that they find Mm -hmm. to Microsoft and they are actually paying out on these bounties saying that if you find a speculative execution flaw, we are now also paying out on that on top of the remote code execution on top of the Internet Explorer edge vulnerabilities on top of the operating system one so they've exp- you, you have to kind of define define what you're going to pay out when you do these bug bounties and at what level you're going to pay out so i think it's very proactive 
and interesting that Microsoft is is doing that as well. I think we talked about that in episode 33. Oh, Bug Bunny? It would make sense that we would talk about that. So that's kind of the episode in a nutshell. I think it's, you know, talks about the different layers of which vulnerabilities can happen at, that it's not just a matter of quickly being able to to put out a patch when you organize the security for some things that like my <laughs> I went from a Nexus 6P, which is a Google Android phone, mm-hmm. which is a good phone. It worked well. But then I got a Samsung S8 Plus on the Rogers network. And I actually forgot that <laughs> I never wanted to get a Rogers phone again. I realized that I went from something that actually was fixed from the crack vulnerability to something now vulnerable to the crack vulnerability. Right. Because Rogers controlling how fast the firmware can come out, plus Samsung, maybe they're not as fast as Google was to, to produce the fix. And I just this morning got a fix uh, <laughs> for it, even though the fix was produced before this is a weird thing with android phones you know i have it look for updates and then it just doesn't do anything with it until i manually look for the update and then Mm -hmm. it discovers that there's an update that was out so literally since the end of january to now i haven't looked and now i just discovered oh there was a there was an update that actually now i am on the oreo operating system for it and now that the new p operating system is coming out soon it'll probably be another four months after that's out that i'll be able to get that on here and Inside of that will be security fixes as well as software fixes. Right. And I have another rant. When you do do an upgrade on your machine, Mm -hmm. some of the hardening that you might have done, some of the configuration changes that I've done. So, for instance, like Cortana, I've I've stopped Cortana from listening to me. But when I install a patch, you know, the spring patch or the fall creative update patch or whatever, right, it re-enables some features. Oh, maybe it'll enable Cortana. Very clever. Right? And now maybe Cortana will be listening again. So these are the things that you have to like keep a mental tally of or even better, make like a script that goes and actually hardens the things that you want hardened, assuming that it's the same setting. There's a whole rant there. But I've got a bunch of virtual machines running that I do stuff on. Plus, I've got the host operating system. Plus, I've got like phone. Plus, I've got a work computer. You know, I've got a bunch of different things. And every once in a while, I just got to go through this mental task sheet of, okay, has this been re-enabled? Do I need to to stop it? What do I need to update there? Because, yeah. Right. So um, in the show mm-hmm. notes, we're going to put the, uh, the IMEI number for your phone and... <laughs> Um, nope. And we'll also have your credit card number there, I think. Yep. My date of birth. Uh, Equifax already has my everything. So, yeah. Did you have any other rants? No. When you start dealing with these crazy hardware flaws, like the software flaws, I get it. You can, you know, they, they can be patched a lot quicker and a lot more effectively, but you can't really patch hardware. You can. You can upgrade firmwares. Yeah. Well, if they've got an upgradable firmware available. That's true. And in the case of this Intel one, like... On a motherboard, does more damage than good. I've I've lost whole network port, ports on a board before because I upgraded the firmware. Right. And then in the case of this, this Intel network processor, or the Intel processor issue, if it is a, hard, a firmware patch then you're potentially standing to lose up to 20% of the the processor functionality, which means you then have to wait for the next generation of processor to get back to more or less where you thought you were. 
And right. to do that, you then have to probably, knowing Intel, completely revamp your whole socket set, which means new motherboards and new everything. Yeah, it, gets, it gets expensive, definitely. P- plus, you're just out of pocket. It's not like they're they're saying turn in your lemons, right? It's not like a car recall. Right. They're not doing that this time. So, yeah, you're definitely going to be out money to fix the problems if it's not something that's flashable. Right. Yeah, so your question was how, how do you deal with stuff like this? We actually architect security into the way that you do stuff. So, for instance, the crack vulnerability, right? You still have other layers of security like doing HTTPS. So someone man in the middle is you. They are now in in between the client communicating to a server acting as an access point. Mm -hmm. But you're still communicating over a secure channel, right? The, The one on the chip is a whole lot more complex as to how to deal with that. But you don't just trust whatever to run on systems. Maybe you have whitelisting for what can actually execute on a system that'll stop you from having the exploit code run on you in the first place that takes advantage of the vulnerability. And then at the network, you have inspections of things coming in and out. And then you can see if something is compromised, you can quickly deal with that problem by having an incident response group. So it doesn't really work for smaller organizations, but you know, as long as you have a decent proportion of security folks or outsourced security folks that, to do this work, you can you can make it through relatively unscathed. Yeah, I like it. The th- another funny thing is that not funny, kind of sad, but uh, Intel. This is not the only problem that they had. They also had some problems with uh, w- when you're talking about like in an enterprise being able to manage systems. They have uh, their whole management engine that you can manage, like Intel motherboards out of band right. and Intel servers out of band. And so they had some critical flaws where you could, if you're just on the network, manage these devices through through the vulnerabilities. Oh, man. In like an out of band way. Yeah. So it's Intel's had a few bumps in the road recently and different types of chips. That's not like in the CPU. That's a whole other firmware for for managing motherboards, chassis, whatnot. So, yeah. Oh, on that stressful note. <laughs> to, to be fair, like Cisco's had some critical vulnerabilities, too, and hard-coded passwords. Like, it's just people do dumb stuff. You have to have a practice for patching stuff. And because some of the patches are scarier than others, you actually have to have, like, a small pool of systems that are sacrificial to actually test out the patches and make sure that they work, right? Some Sometimes patching things break other things. Um, I know that there was some older AMD processors that when they patch, when Microsoft did their patch for Spectre, it killed the systems that were running these older versions of AMDs. It doesn't matter the size of your organization. You actually have to have some hardware set aside to do this with. And if you didn't do it, well, that's a risk that you've unknowingly accepted, so what we're doing, communicating these things, is raising that awareness so that somebody knows, oh, you know what? I do actually have to spend a little bit of extra money having a system sitting around doing nothing for the purpose of patching or replacing, right? It's part of this whole planning for things to go wrong. Right. You always want things to work out well, right? Everybody plans for the success criteria. The smart ones also plan for things going wrong and how to recover quickly for that. And if they can squirrel away a little bit of capital to spend on that, then they have a much better day. Right. Well, then on that terrifying note, 
Let me go ahead and uh, let me let me just tell you this, Max. I want you to have yourself a short week. Short week sounds well, normally, terrifying. Normally, I say let's have a great week, but let's make this week shorter than the last week that we enjoyed. Oh yes, yeah. In that case, that's great. One other thing. Yeah. What's that? I love you, man. Oh, I love you too, buddy.